the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This talk is called Institutional Memory. And we'll start with some words from Mary Douglas, the distinguished uh, anthropologist who taught for a season at Northwestern before heading back to her home in Oxford by way of another season at Princeton. In her book, How Institutions Think, she writes, and I quote, when we look closely at the construction of past time, we find the process has very little to do with the past at all and everything to do with the present. Institutions create shadowed places in which nothing can be seen and no questions asked. They make other areas show finely discriminated detail which is closely scrutinized and ordered. History emerges in an unintended shape as a result of practices directed to immediate practical ends. To watch those practices establish selective principles that highlight some kinds of events and obscure others is to inspect the social order operating on individual minds, unquote. It flows, but there's a lot in what she has said. We are looking at memory, the collective memory which is created by and constitutive of institutions. It's a living thing. This day on which we gather is a kind of institution as well. And as an institution, we are taking this opportunity to challenge its historicity, to go back to its source one particular day, and to try to use it as a means of bringing back to the church all those state events of memory which have taken the names Remembrance Day, Veterans Day, Memorial Day. We're bringing them all back home today in the hope that all of those nations who have seen and created the last century of war, all of the Christian nations, they've done more than their share, might also find some unity in our hearts, our thoughts, and our prayers. Memory is a living thing. As an institution, even this community and the established church of which we, though set apart, are still apart, take today, this Sunday, to remember. To look back upon one single day, first called Armistice Day, and commemorated annually since then, a hundred times as Remembrance Day, upon which was established a cessation of hostilities to take effect on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918 on the Western Front of World War I. This was to be the end of the war that was to end all wars. 20 years later, the war broke out again. Yet we stopped to remember that day, that day of peace, and the blood-red poppies that were seen growing on the graves of the fallen are the symbols, not just of cessation of hostilities, but of a peace that will endure someday for more than a day at a time, we pray. 
My grandfather was one of the first to enlist in the Canadian Expeditionary Forces and among the first to see action in the Second Battle of Ypres. And although he was among the first of the one out of every three who were wounded, he was not among the 2,000 Canadians who died there in a few weeks in the spring of 1915. Remember, the war started in 1914. He survived the surgical techniques of the time with a permanently shattered knee and shrapnel, jagged chunks of iron forever embedded in his brain. He walked with a cane, and he was a very sensitive spirit, an artist. Some of his prints are in the collection of the National Gallery of Canada. And he never spoke of the war. He never spoke of the war. I can only imagine what he would have made of Cantini. He may well have been intended by a physician soldier by the name of Colonel John McCrae, who wrote the poem in Flanders Fields amidst the flow of the wounded. Remember, the wounded were so great and they anticipated this carnage that they built railway tracks to the embedded hospitals where the surgeons worked to deal with the thousands upon thousands of casualties. After putting one of his friends in the ground and taking the service, this poet, soldier, and physician wrote this poem in 20 minutes, and I quote, in Flanders fields the poppies blow, between the crosses row and row that mark our place, and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly. Scarce heard amid the guns below, we are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. The elegiac, elegiac tone is answered in the last verse with something more heroic. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you, from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. This bond between the living and the dead was established, intense and immediate. And as this poem went on to achieve unheard of popularity after it was published in December of 1915, untold thousands were also inspired to offer their lives. But the blood red poppy that we wear today marks not just the memory of loss, it represents hope the hope of the life of the age to come in which King Jesus and we will return to an earth refreshed and renewed. The devastation of battle and the scourge and fire of war healed and grown over again with abundant life. That this hope, the hope of the resurrection, not just of the body from the grave, but of the whole of creation from its bondage to death and decay, was itself nurtured in another war, or series of war, three, two and three thousand years ago, in the heat of battle and amidst the humiliation of defeat, exile, and centuries of foreign occupation among the desert sands of the ancient Near East, culminating in sporadic rebellions which were brutally repressed is part of the story that the people of God told and retold. And you'll do well to look through any of the pages in the Bible 
and not find a war going on somewhere. Indeed, the hope of the resurrection, which is notable by its absence from the classical period of Israel's establishment and institutionalization up until the kingdom, if you like, the glorious kingdom uh, that culminated in King David, King Solomon, and then fell into war and decline from which it never recovered, this hope of resurrection only starts to emerge from the shades of Sheol with the exile which comes later, and the reconstitution of memory, which happens there in Babylon. Then, with the return to a homeland which followed, a homeland which suffers successive occupations, each more brutal than the one before, we see an afterlife really emerge, which is more than the cherished memory for a righteous nation, but begins to take on a more tangible and personal aspect, intensifying from the potent and portentous symbols of Daniel to the grim determination graphically depicted in the time of the Maccabees. And it is to this period that the Pharisees turned in Jesus' own time. The Pharisees, who were the radicals, if you like, believed in the resurrection of the body. Against this, they were confronted with the Sadducees who believed in no such thing. They believed in what the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, set forth. And there's no hint of life after death at all, except a very shadowy and shady place indeed we get when Saul is sought to be raised up again from a kind of purgatory. Jesus makes it clear that he is, if only this once, siding with the Pharisees. Of those risen dead, he says, indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. They do not marry because they live forever. They are brought back and raised to eternal life. So there is no more need for procreation in the new creation. And it is to the hope of this new creation that we must in the face of all the brutality and senseless loss with which we are still confronted, turn and return, and not just as future reality, but as a perpetually present possibility. In the poem, Strange Meeting, used by Benjamin Britten in his War Requiem of 1962, Another poet of the first war, Wilfred Owen, penned these verses. He's imagining the battlefield and, if you like, these ghosts arising as the ground is still smoldering. And a British and a German soldier meet. And he, the British soldier, says to the German, I am the enemy you killed, my friend. I knew you in this dark. For so you frowned yesterday through me as you jabbed and killed. I parried, but my hands were loath and cold. Let us sleep now. The sense of peace to which they go is one step on from the call back into battle, which McRae offers. But even in this, it's very implicit. Owen himself was killed in action. He had been wounded in the war, and even though he loathed the war, he volunteered to go back again for more. He was killed in action on the 4th of November, 1918, during the crossing of the Sambre-Oise Canal, exactly one week to the hour before the signing of the armistice. 
In Owen, we see the hope implicit in McRae's poem made explicit here, the renewal of life that only forgiveness and the grace of God enables. This little outpost that we have on Jewel Road stands as a diplomatic mission then, an embassy of the kingdom of God. The forgiveness that the whole world needs is that which we give and receive here every Sunday at the Lord's table whenever we gather. Our words of institution say it all. Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Our prayer is that the time in which we step outside of the concerns of the nations in which we are rooted and love can be so refreshed by this vision of the kingdom to come, which is even coming now, that we may return to this great nation, willing to bring more of that kingdom into her life. The institutional memory, then, it is our task to refresh and to institute peace, which is the ultimate aim of both church and state. We have peace at home right now, but we do not have peace on earth. Our ears are deaf to the clamor of competing ideologies and national idolatries that are establishing and reestablishing themselves as the whole creation groans. Indeed, the one thing that seems to unite all the nations of this earth is the war we wage on creation and on the creator. The consequences of this are as yet unknown and untold. We may seek, in the meantime, in splendid isolation, to inscribe our future on the broken pieces of the past, or we may seize the promise of a new creation in which the future is already spelled out, one in which the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, all the peoples of the earth united around the throne of King Jesus, who will come back to this brooding, blood-soaked planet and make it whole again. All those divisions on our political globes will vanish for good. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. This is our hope. Amen.